Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today, Steve Sando, is an actual bean mogul. His company, Rancho Gordo, is the preeminent provider of heirloom beans around the world. He is the author of four books, including Heirloom Beans and Supper at Rancho Gordo. His Bean Club, which sends a box of new beans and Rancho Gordo products to customers every month, currently has 40,000 people on the waiting list. In today's session, we talk all about the food he ate growing up. My father was a pretty good cook. My mother wasn't. We used to joke how she would aim the toaster at us with the Pop-Tarts. His favorite way to cook beans. You simmer until done. And that's the main thing you have to think about. And the success of Rancho Gordo as a company. But I also know how lucky I am because there's a lot of people that are talented and work really hard and don't get anywhere. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Steve Sando. All right, Steve, well, it's so nice to finally meet you. You too, because you know you were an early, early bean adapter. Uh-huh. When, I, when I first started, you were one of the first people to write, and you found it on your own. I wasn't, you know, didn't send you influencer stuff. You just found these beans, and you started. I think you're writing about Good Mother Stollard, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've been using your beans. It feels like forever, but now I mean, <laughs> now it's everywhere. I mean, you must be. Yeah. I mean, as awful as this pandemic has been for everyone, I I imagine in terms of the business side of things, it must have been good for you. It was. Um, we had the New York Times last spring, and that we were six weeks out on orders. It took us six weeks to fulfill orders, which was a nightmare. And then we had CBS News in December, and the two of those things just killed us in a good way. Yeah, uh, yeah, a good nightmare to have, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the hard part is you know you have your bean freaks who've been so supportive from the word go, and suddenly they can't get the beans they want, and some of them weren't as open and loving as they might have been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I'm sure. That's the best funny because people are always saying to me because I cook all the time, are you going to open a restaurant? And I'm like, no, because I can't oh. I can't deal with customers. <laughs> I can't deal with yeah. people sending food back or being un- unsatisfied. It's just frustrating. We have the Bean Club, you know, which is uh, quarterly shipments. And are, you're not in that, are you? I mean, I would love to be. I, I thought it was a very selective group of people. I only let certain people in. No, no, there's a waiting <laughs> list. So there's 11,000 people in it, and the waiting list is 40,000 today. See? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to cut the line. So, you oh, know, I'll, right. I'll get on the, I'll be 40,001 uh, on the list and okay. when it's time. It, does, it does move. It takes about a year. We're saying, and we're working really hard to open it up to more people. Uh, but because of the New York Times article, we were about two weeks late with the, Bean Club shipment in, I think, March or April. And the reaction from people was so negative. I mean, my people, and they're like, oh, we're family and family doesn't do this to each other. And it's like, well, <laughs> oh my God. we're not family. This, FYI, <laughs> you know, it's the business and the client. And yeah, I'm sorry, but it's not the worst thing in the, that could happen. I always found your beans. I mean, throughout the pandemic, I actually was going to show you. I have your yellow eye here and I've got some yellow Indian woman here. Wow. Uh, so I, I don't know, maybe LA had a good good thing going with you guys because I would always find them at different stores and different places oh, I would sure. go. You can yeah. find them in different stores. And the other thing is, the bean club is only one part. So people, you don't have to be in the bean club to enjoy early beans. I mean, there's other options. Oh yeah, of course. And we should say for people who don't know that your beans are, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to toot your own horn, but they are also, they're some of the most extraordinary beans you can have. And they really changed my mind about beans as like a special occasion food or something to look forward to. Because I think 
growing up, I don't think I ever looked forward to beans as a kid. And then where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, New York and then Florida. Oh, wow. uh, and then I think um, like, you know, baked beans, I like, you know, like the sure. classic American baked beans, but your beans really opened my eyes to the potential of what a bean could can be. And I cook them all the time. I love that. That's so great. But yeah. We, yeah when great. I first started though, there really wasn't anyone doing commercial heirloom beans. I mean, it really was, you go to the grocery store and you get eight-year-old beans in a filthy plastic pouch. Mm-hmm. And if you're an old hippie, you got them at your food co-op, but they're really, and if you're Italian, you know, you grew your own, I think is what a lot of people did. And most heirlooms were grown by hobby farmers and gardening enthusiasts. And so, and I just remember thinking here, in, I'm in Napa and we know every obscure Italian balsamic vinegar, every, all these things, we don't even know our own food. So my goal early on was I would like the average home cook to know what a Riozave is and know mm-hmm. exactly when they should use it. And we're getting there. We're not quite there but it's been pretty good. Well, I also feel like you were ahead of the trend in terms of like provenance and sort of just now people want, I think people care more now about these kinds of things than maybe they did 10 years ago or 15 years ago because of Top Chef and all these, all the different media that's out there about food. People are, I think, more interested in in heirloom ingredients. Well, they are. And the thing is, it's not like I thought, oh, I have this great business plan and this is Mm -hmm. how I will make a living. It's just, I love them. I started taking them to farmer's markets and little by little, the thing snowballed. So you'd be pretty idiotic to think this was a good idea as a business plan. My only question for you, okay, so you must, you have to get this all the time and then we're going to get to your therapy. So I hope you're ready to be diagnosed. I'm a mess, so bring it on. But okay, and you get this all the time, but I'm going to ask you about like the stomach issues that sometimes creep up with beans because I've struggled with that a little bit. And what, what's your advice in terms of um, people who have challenges or struggle to digest beans? Well, to keep it to yourself because no one really cares. <laughs> just start. No, and I think this guy, I can't remember his name and I'm sorry, but there was a doctor who wrote a book on flatulence and it was called To Air as Human. And this is what the body does. It means your body's functioning and there's a problem. But I mean, the more I have a pretty fibrous diet and it really isn't an issue for me. So I think if you eat a lot of hamburgers and French fries and gorgeous desserts, and then all of a sudden you have a big bowl of Royal Coronas and you think, oh my God, these are great. And then you have a second bowl, then you get what in the industry, we call it gift with purchase. <laughs> Free gift. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, stuff happens. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's just. I, I think your beans might have ended some marriages along the way because um, it might yeah. be true. But on the flip side, I actually got a Twitter from somebody who says she added the, her bean club status to her Tinder profile, and she's oh. a lot more action. Because okay, there you go. It. So that's so funny. Well, I mean. I, I, so I, I feel like your different beans have different effects on me, depending on which ones okay. I have. Oh, so that could be. Yeah. And, you know, the tepary beans, which are our only indigenous bean in North America, uh, actually have higher fiber and higher protein. Mm-hmm. So they would. And also, you know, the, there's a terroir issue. I mean, they really taste differently depending on where, which field they're grown in. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's all these issues. So, I, I mean, it could be. Uh, sensitive system. Would <laughs> well, I don't want to dwell on this, but thank you okay, for good. indulging me. Um, but I was going to ask you before we get to your therapy, are you, do you ever get sick of beans, like dealing with beans, like, and this being your thing? I mean, did you ever think it would go this far and you'd still be talking about it all these years later? 
No, I over the weekend went to a party because I'm actually like entering the world again. Yes. And it, it was funny that, you know, there's battle guy like oh whatever and then they think oh you're rancho gordo and all that was the bell of the ball uh-huh. and they want to know like how did you get started and it's like oh my god it's like one it's like haven't you been listening because i've been talking for 20 years and two it's like oh, it's a party but then you just put a nickel in me and i start going and it's like it's really fun because i'm absolutely i don't get sick of beans and right. I, I do get a little sick of talking about salting and soaking but i get it's an intimidating thing here's a hard rock and you're going to turn it into something creamy you mm-hmm. I need some help. This is doesn't work for me. So I totally get that. But no, and I eat beans. I probably have a, on an average about half a cup a day. I eat them all the time. Wow. And I just have my blood work done and I don't really know what all the numbers mean, but everyone's like, oh, your cholesterol's, your LDL <laughs> levels are excellent. Like, oh, oh, good. I think we know why, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not just a bean club president. You're also a client. No, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we just uh, introduced a black bean from Chiapas. Mexico. And when my partners in Mexico sent it to me, I thought, uh, yeah, I need another black bean. Like I need a hole in the head. They're just <laughs> have so many. Yeah. And it's like, I ate it. And it's like, oh, we have to have this. So this sweet little village now, <laughs> we're getting 30,000 pounds of this bean and they are just, they can't sell them in Mexico because there's really not a market for them really outside of their village. And they go to Mexico city and often the chefs are a little I don't want to use the word snobby, but they're snobby. And uh, then all of a sudden, these gringos are saying, no, these are so good that we want 30,000 pounds of them. And it really is, uh, to me, this is also why I love doing what I'm doing, because it, it sort of justifies that. I mean, they're you're validating them in a way that yes. they're not getting at home. And, and you're changing their lives probably economically to suddenly yes, buy you all these you have to be careful about that, which is also why we're also really careful. Like I want your grandmother's beans. People think sometimes we grow beans in Mexico because they're cheaper and actually those are even more expensive. Mm-hmm. We're doing it because they're fabulous beans. The bulk of our production is here in California. Got it. A lot of people don't know that. They assume everything's Mexican. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. I'm a native son of the Golden West, and I want to produce things. I'm so tired of ideas and <laughs> services. It's like, no, let's make something. So we make food. I feel like, uh, and we're about to get to your lunch, but um, if this podcast, there's a podcast called Desert Island Discs, where they ask oh, people, like, which albums they bring to a desert island but i kind of want to ask you which beans you would bring to a desert island of your many beans but maybe just pick one and then we'll get to your lunch <laughs> is that well, too hard it's like your children like choosing yeah, your favorite child. my favorite child <laughs> you know i certainly have one but i'm very careful not to talk about it no i i think good mother stollards well i i pick one of each like i need the dark i need a light and i need a medium one so i think good mother stollard for sure is one of them uh-huh and uh, which we, of course we never have, but we're working really hard. We actually this year have a 20 acre test farm and we're actually testing to see like, if you plant them this way, if you add more water, or if you do, you know, companion, is anything gonna help? But the cool thing is we're actually using it to show young farmers like how we're doing it so that they can get involved too. Cause your average farmer is not uh, a millennial. <laughs> Just, <you> know, <laughs> like they're a little older and we've got to really encourage younger farmers and help create markets for them is what I would say. All right, Steve. Well, the no, time sorry. has time has come to um, ask you, what did you have for lunch today? Well, I had, so it's as usual, I sort of do leftover. I live on leftovers mm-hmm. and I love that to me. So there's Tamar Adler has that beautiful book called 
an endless feast. I'm gonna everlasting meal. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't know. I love it. I loved it so much, though. I bought it in paperback, and then I went. I'm gonna get this in hardback because I don't want this thing to go. I mean, all the little things you knew along the way, she solidifies for you and actually helps you make sense of it. And mm -hmm. to me, the smartest one is you go to the farmer's market, and the first thing you do is put everything in your refrigerator, and it starts going bad. So no, you should actually cook it when it's at its peak. And when you have a refrigerator full of cooked ingredients, you can create anything. Mm -hmm. So today I have, I love poaching chicken. Because if you poach chicken, you also get uh, free soup, basically. So I poach the chicken, shred it, put the stock in one thing, and then I have the chicken somewhere else. I had, of course, cooked beans, which I'm not supposed to say, but I had good mother's dollar because I'm the boss and I, <laughs> I have a secret supply of them. Right. You deserve them. I mean, yes. you earn them. And I had cooked cactus paddles, nopales from our uh, parking lot here at Rancho Gordo. We have a lot of them. So we cut them and cook those. I cooked those. And then I also had some clay pot mushrooms from, it's a Paula Wolfert recipe where you cook just button mushrooms and clay and it's the most delicious thing. So I had all those things in different containers and I made sort of a bowl with it and it was uh, absolutely delicious. That does sound delicious. Um, I, I, mean, I wouldn't serve it to company, but you know, you... <laughs> One of the reasons I contacted you is when you had Cole Escola on. Yeah. And I think he is the funniest person alive. And he won't believe this, but I've been listening. I've been watching those old videos that he and Jeffrey Self did before yes. they even had the Bravo or the, is it Bravo? No, what's the? No, it was a, wait, wait, wait. no, it's Logo. Logo, logo show. Yeah. And it's like to find out that he eats almost his penance was so heartbreaking to me. It's like, right. how is someone so funny? Like, that's the whole point of all this awful work we do for me is to sit around a table and break bread with people you love with right I, I don't love I mean sometimes I have some out of control foodie friends where it's like oh this is some obscure food thing and it has to be novel but breaking bread with people you love is like it's the whole point of everything to me so it was like shocking someone <laughs> who provides so much humor and joy is like oh that's well, yeah, I mean, I've discovered that in my life, though, because it's like I have this passion as you do, too. But it's sort of I have to accept that some people have completely different passions. Sure. Like Cole loves like old movies and Barbara so, Stanwyck. Yeah, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's just like I feel like you just have to because for me, I totally agree with you. It's, it's disturbing to me. I remember that there was this friend that married this guy who said that if he could just drink or take a pill every day to eat food, that he would just take the pill every day. And I, I still have to like hang out with this person and I try not to judge them for it, but it's like, I can't imagine wanting to just eat a pill every day and not eat food. Or, yeah. And for me, it was like, basically I'm going to eat so I don't get sick from not eating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? Because I wake up dreaming about what I'm going to do for lunch, let alone dinner. So, well, so, so my first question for you, based on your lunch, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, fully analyze you yet, but... Um, but it seems like there's a lot of knowledge and history that comes with your lunch. I mean, how to cook a cactus, how to cook, um, you know, mushrooms in a clay pot and just this, this breadth of knowledge, even like about beans and bean cookery. And, um, and I'm curious, where did this all, where did this all come from? Where did you learn all this? Or where, where did the spark of culinary interest begin for you? Well, my father was a pretty good cook. My mother wasn't. We used to joke how she would aim the toaster at us with the pop tarts, and we had to thought <laughs> so bad. Is that true? No, no, no. no. I, I think it was a Lily Tomlin joke. She used. To oh, that's funny. I think. I'm not sure. I don't know where that comes from, but she was horrible. Very appreciative though, uh, and my father's a pretty good cook. So 
and that we lived back and forth between the two of them over the years. So uh, I think I naturally went towards that. I also think, Doctor, <laughs> I was, when my parents divorced, so it was fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, we moved every single year. So I actually, people don't know this, but I'm somewhat shy. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. true though. You, yeah, I get yeah. that. I, I'm an extroverted introvert myself. So yeah. I understand. Yeah. Like I can't walk into a room and work the room and I have other friends who just, oh, thank God I get to work the room. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> been, it, to me, it's like the worst thing. Yeah. But I think creating a sense of home because of that is really key to me. And I remember when I started high school, my parents, I just said, you two figure it out, but I have to go four years at one school. I can't keep doing this. And I think if you look back, it has been, I'm creating a home, creating a home has been really key. It's a theme throughout my mm -hmm. life. And I'm really uneasy if I don't have one. So I think that's it. And then when I actually, through very unusual circumstances, I have two children and uh, I had my oldest, my youngest son lived with me. And part of that was Sunday supper. And then my mother ended up living next door. So we actually, it was, the law we're having Sunday supper. And my mother every week was like, oh, you don't have to. It's like, I know I don't have to, but I have this <laughs> crap job all week long where I'm working like a dog. This is where I get my pleasure. And uh, we'd have people over. And of course, you know, my son now says that was his favorite times. Oh, Sunday. that's so nice. So it was worth it. Yeah. And I really relate to you saying you wanted to create your own home. It's funny. I wonder if I went back through all my old podcasts how many people have a similar story of one, really? one parent or both parents not cooking very well and then wanting to like cook for themselves and make their own home. And that's absolutely true for me too. That's my motivation is to create a cozy, comforting home for myself. And my I might just have a control thing too. Yeah. Like for the world's kind of nuts, you have created something yourself. Totally. So when your mom lived next door to you and you would cook for her, was she a, a gracious guest? I mean, did she enjoy your food? Mm -hmm. Yes, but they both she and my son would gang up on me, which is fine. Because, <laughs> you know, they really had nothing to talk about. I did. <laughs> <laughs> They'd gang up on you in terms of like what you cooked and like whether it was what dinner. I cooked, what I did, my little quirks. I tend to be a bit of a collector now and again. And uh yeah. And also I loved having guests over and they would like, please no more guests this week. We're really <laughs> tired. And then of course they run the show. I mean, they loved having the guests. So, it was, uh -huh. and I think, you know, for a young person having them at a dinner party and being treated like an adult and, you know, asking to help. And uh, I, I think it really helped with the development on some level. And I think I had that too, because, you know, my dad had a series of stewardesses that would come over for dinner all the time. <laughs> That's funny. He was a real playboy. It was. Okay. And so, uh, but he always insisted that the kids be at the table for the dinner. So we did that. That's really nice. I think nice. that helped me to hold my own and also know when to be quiet and when to, you know, roll with it. I'm curious when you said you were a real collector when you were talking about the <laughs> dinners, what did that mean? Like, what did you mean by that? Well... I mean, even with the beans, it's like, I don't have a casual interest in anything. It's like, mm -hmm. if I think it's interesting, I go for it a lot. So okay. I have probably about 500 Mexican movie posters from the, the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, I used to collect a lot of music and I still have, I, I just could never get rid of the CDs or the LPs. So I have them all still. And my latest thing is a vintage silver from Tosco, Mexico by this designer, William Spratling, who was really interesting because he 
was at Tulane University and he was roommates with William Faulkner. And then mm. Tulane has a great archeological program. So they sent him to Mexico. He found Tosco and realized it was an old mining town. And suddenly, I mean, almost single-handedly, he created this whole industry using, and it was the era of Diego Rivera and mm-hmm. uh, that crowd. So they were actually, it was post-revolution. They were finally in- incorporating indigenous themes, not just a poor man's Europe which was what the revolution was partly about. So anyway, it's great silver. That's so you collect, so you actually collect like all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you a hoarder? No, no, no. Well, I am in the sense that I bring it in, but I actually don't get sentimental or upset when it goes out. Okay. I do somewhat hoard and then I do a major cleaning. Like it's the same thing with cooking with yeah. the freezer. I'm really good at freezing things, but I'm not good about using them once they're in the freezer. So right. it's sort of this mystery area <laughs> area. And uh, there's a lot of expensive things in there that should be torn out probably. So I, I have like soups from like five years ago in my freezer that are probably Now, you know, where we live in Northern California too, we have all these power outages now because of the wildfires in case there's one. And you just lose so much food every time. Right. So it's very irritating. So. Wait, I wanted to ask you, and this is, this is probably an annoying question for you, but since you said that it was part of your lunch, the good mother Stollard beans, how do you cook your beans? How do you do it? Well, I'm so glad you asked. No. <laughs> <laughs> you must answer this like every day, but I have to I ask. No, but the real secret, and I did a thread on this once on Twitter, is you simmer until done. And that's the main thing you have to think about. So there's probably 50 ways of cooking beans. I believe in really making life as difficult for myself as possible. So I cook in clay. So I have a beautiful old clay pot that I turn the heat on and I use gas. I actually have a beautiful old Wedgwood stove, which really is my hero. Um, But I saute onion and garlic in a little olive oil or a lot of olive oil, it depends on my mood. Add the beans unsoaked. I add a cover by about two inches of water. And then I bring it to a super hard boil until it's just going crazy. And I always say, this is, lets the beans know you're in charge. Mm-hmm. And then you turn it down as low as it'll go. And if I'm busy and need to have the beans right away, I'll cook them sort of moderate. But if it's Sunday and I have nothing else going on, I love to put them in the back and really just an occasional blurb coming up. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to do it. And there's nothing else in there, like no garlic or carrots. Well, onions. I started the onion and garlic first. Oh, yes, I, I, don't, Sorry. I used to do carrots and celery. And if it's, something for sure super euro yeah i will do that but i think i like it more neutral because then you can always add stuff later Mm -hmm. if you don't but once you add celery and carrots it definitely has sort of that chicken stock thing and do you do um the like second cook like i've done recipes where like i boil the beans for a while and then once they're kind of getting soft then in a separate skillet i'll saute like a bunch of stuff like mirepoix and bacon and then add the beans to that and like sort of a fresher like Have you done that? No. Oh, that seems like an extra step, an extra pan to clean. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay, so I don't need to do that anymore. Just straight out of the pot into the bowl, top with what you yes, want. And I do it, and I've also done it side by side where I saute the onion and garlic first and then add the beans. And then other times I add, just throw it all in a pot and there is almost no difference. I mean, okay. I think I'm helping by sauteing first and releasing the juices, which is so important. And it turns out it's really not. And did you say, because I feel like this is the question that you mentioned earlier that you get asked all the time, but did you do salt early or salt later? Well, apparently the salting is a myth, but for me, even after all this time, I still don't want this to be the one pot where the myth is true. So I actually, there's a point where 
the beans, so they're boiling or simmering for quite a while, usually about an hour or so, and they stop smelling like the vegetables, they start smelling like beans. Mm -hmm. And that's when I salt. But some people are doing this brining thing, which I I tried and I couldn't tell any difference. And it just seemed like an extra step where you actually soak the beans in salt water, which is not intuitive. Mm -hmm. And then other people, um, you know, say you can't salt it at all. So again, I go back to you just simmer until done. So uh, this, I do know for sure you don't want to put any acids in. So tomatoes, even molasses, all those things impede, they they keep them harder. So you really want to not do those until they're fully cooked. Getting a little feedback on the microphone. I don't know. Was it me? No, I don't know what that was. I think it's okay now. Um, We're fine. So, okay. So I wanted to ask you, because you were talking about Mexico and and you mentioned this artist who you like or the silver that you like. And I wanted to ask, like, when did your relationship to Mexico begin and how did it begin? And when did you first start traveling there? Well, you know, when I was in high school, which was many moons ago, I was part of the United Farm Workers boycott. So after school, I would go down to the grocery stores and ask people not to buy lettuce and grapes. So I think really early I was introduced to the Mexican culture. Although mm-hmm. I, now looking back, I didn't know anything. I mean, no, no, I love burritos. I know all about Mexico. <laughs> that was kind of my attitude. Right. Um, and then I think I really got interested in Cuban music, which led me to kind of pork and lime and rum. And then I led me into Mexican food. And then I remember hearing a really good Mexican bolero and thinking, oh no, and Mexico, was sort of like pinto beans and it was like it's right there so mm-hmm. it doesn't seem that exotic where cuba was the everything and it's like wow and i think i always say this the more i go to mexico the mes- less i understand it like mm-hmm. i think i have a pretty good hold on it and i know probably more than most people but i have no clue is and i come back just shocked every time i mean it's very complex do you ever watch patty jenich's show on people oh, yeah oh, she's wonderful yeah I love that show. I think it's one of the best cooking shows or food shows on TV right now. And especially I started watching it during the Trump administration when he was like (laughs) talking, you know, talking so derogatorily about Mexicans and just really just that ugliness. And and then you watch her show and she's she's showing you parts of Mexico and uh, things in Mexico that I had no idea, just places like Sonora and I don't know, places I'd never been and didn't even know to think about. Um, so I, I just love that show so much. And it's also just the rich, vibrant food culture there, just how much, you know, complexity and fascinating and things are going what's on. What's fascinating too, is that's through her eyes, you know, a Jewish Mexican woman, I, I don't know where she's from exactly, but I mean, there are just so many Mexicos and that's hers. I think she should do a book on Jewish Mexican cooking like mm, so. Cause that's a good idea totally under told that story but then you know you see someone like Rick Bayless who really has a more all-encompassing idea Diana Kennedy goes narrow and deep right. uh, you know Zarela Martinez was you know she has her own experience because her mother was a world famous cook and now she's bred very famous cooks herself so everyone has this completely different well not completely different but a slightly different perspective and each one is just as valid I think mm-hmm. I'm very conscious these days of, so I'm working actually on a book of our Rancho Gordo Shashak project. And the Shashak is the other company I work with down there. And I'm sort of now thinking, well, is this really even my story to tell sometimes? Cause mm-hmm. you know, you, sorry, I'm going off on a rant. 
No, it's interesting. We need to get back to my horrible <laughs> mental state soon. Though, right? <laughs> yeah, we're doing great. I got back from Oaxaca and it was just shocking how Instagram has changed the world and also how Noma doing that pop-up in Tulum that was so famous has changed everything. And I don't think it's the gentrification of Oaxaca is like happening super fast and everybody's taking selfies and there's sort of this, you know, San Miguel de Allende has sort of a uh, boomer <laughs> kind of gringo at, atmosphere. Well, Oaxaca is turning into sort of a Noma uh, gringo atmosphere. And it, mm. it it's just, it's hard. So now people ask me, oh, I'm going to Oaxaca, where should I go? And I'm just, I'm going to stop telling people. Like you should go to the market and find the busiest stall and see if that looks appealing to you. And then you should just go try it. Mm-hmm. I think just, and it's just so rapid and people just check. I went to this restaurant because I was in Oaxaca and it was really good. And there I'm and I had, I saw Oaxaca. It's like, yeah. So, well, that's like me. We went to Mexico City. So we went to Pujol and we went sure. to yeah. all the You should go to those places. Yeah. I'm not saying not to go, but you should also get lost and eat a taco on the street. And- I know, which I, I'm not good at. I think it goes back to control and like wanting to know where we're going to go, what we're going to do. But I, I agree that like I should be more adventurous when I travel. Yeah. Oh, but this is not this is not my therapy though. This is your but therapy. Might, we might turn this around a little bit. Yeah, I'm maybe. A free associate. So <laughs> like, one thing yeah. one thing that I'm a little unclear about, and I, I kind of want to go back to it, is like you talked about your your mom not being a great cook and your dad cooking well. But in terms, because you live in Napa, which is like some of the you know most refined, for lack of a better word, like fanciest restaurants. I mean, French Laundry is there and all this mm-hmm. and wineries. And so I guess I'm trying to get a sense of. Um, the journey that you went on with your knowledge of food. That's sort of what I asked earlier, but I guess I wanted to understand more about your education and, and was the food that your parents cooked similar to the food that you still eat now, or is it, did something change along the way? Well, everyone thinks the food revolution just happened recently. And, and I don't mean to seem snobby, but in the Bay area, it's been, you could eat really well in the sixties and seventies here. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had, how many bakeries that you just knew you didn't buy bread on Wednesday because that was the day they were closed. But we had so many sourdough bakeries that that aren't even there anymore. Really. And this is where now, you grew up, right? You grew up in Sausalito, is that right? Yes, but okay. do you know where I was born? Where? In the Scientology building in LA. <laughs> in, L- in LA, really? Yes, yes. How did that come about? Well, my parents lived in, uh, my mother was from Orange County and my father was from Chicago and uh, they lived in LA when they were just married. And okay. uh, that was Cedars of Lebanon at that point. It wasn't. Oh, okay. Oh, that would have been really interesting. Okay. Yeah, you could dig deep. No, yeah, I <laughs> So you were saying that. So, so you grew up with like good bread. So, so you were in an area where there was good food to begin with as a kid. Yes. And, you know, my dad used to go diving for abalone. Uh, wow. We grew up, like every ashtray in the house was an abalone shell, but they smoked a lot in those days. So you, in the mornings after party, it would smell like bad gin cigarette butts and uh, steak fat. And I remember seeing the abalone uh, ashtray, they all had these little holes because abalone had the five or six holes, I think. So they were just these ash piles or anyway. So that's, uh, but it's my long way to say you could eat well at that point. So I think the aspect of having people over was, was just embedded pretty early. Mm-hmm. And then- Well, I, well it also is making me think a little bit about I guess I sense from you, and I've only known you now about 30 minutes, but a lack of elitism, like it doesn't feel like what you do or the world you came from or the world that you're currently inhabiting is about 
holding yourself above others because of your knowledge of food or anything. It feels like you're very much, you know, grounded and have your feet on the ground, which is not necessarily true of a lot of the people where you live. Like, or me. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it is. But you know what? I think early on being gay and not being validated in so many ways is like I realized the mainstream was never going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And I think so I'm not elitist in the sense in that sense, but I am sort of a counterculture snob, I would think. I really don't enjoy a lot of mainstream culture. I really prefer jazz to rock. I prefer uh, pork to steak, pork <laughs> to beef, I don't know, or chicken, yeah. I don't know. So I just, I think somewhere in there, it's not elitist, but there is sort of a snobism, I think I might have. I, yeah, but but I think I guess it, specifically though with your approach to food and like beans and stuff, it's, mm -hmm. it feels like beans are not you know as much as you're packaging them in these beautiful packages and they look like jewels. They're still they're a humble ingredient. They're not right, right. like sixty dollar olive oil or whatever. You know? No, but I also think you know because uh, troubles or hard times. I was a very irresponsible younger person financially, so I, I've also had this not a survival technique, but it's like, oh, look, I can forge the uh, cactus packs and eat them. That's a great thing. Beans are cheap. I can keep them in there. So I always have that. It's almost like a, a weird sort of preparing uh, a bit. Yeah. Well, I was going I mean, that that's a good question is like in, in terms of frugality, because um, that's the other element of your lunch was that you know, you're, you're using a cactus from the parking lot and right. you know, leftover beans. So are, are you a frugal person, generally speaking? I thought, I used to think I was, but actually I just find waste offensive. So I'm maybe not the most frugal person, but I think wasting, and as anyone who works here will tell you, I'm irrational sometimes about certain things. But I, I think waste is offensive, whether it's energy or food. I, I was with somebody for a while who would just buy whatever they thought they might want and then throw it away when it went bad. And it's like, you know, that's me. You can't, that to me is like really a sin. <laughs> but oh, yeah. and I'm not moral, but, or religious, but it's like, you can't buy meat and not eat it. That's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, it's funny because I'm testing a cookbook right now. Um, and so I have to cook all these things. And, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, I, have, I made like liver pate and it had two sticks of butter. In it. And it was like a yeah. giant thing of it. And Craig was like, we can't waste this. We can't, my partner, Craig, we can't waste this. So he was like eating it for lunch every day, putting on crackers. And I was like, Craig, I don't think you have to eat the entire bowl of liver pate. It's not good right, for well, you. Once in a while for the, the greater <laughs> cause. But actually, I have an unnatural love of chicken liver pate. And, oh, yeah. Uh, from Jewish delis to real high-end uh, French things, I just, there's something about it that's just one of my, and yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> I was, was going to go into duck, but we won't even start there. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask you, because it's um, related to kind of what we were just talking about, frugality and people working with you. So, because it seems like you have a very creative side um, and you talked about the side of you that's sort of, you know, fringe or, or what's the word, like lack of conventional or unconventional. Yeah. Um, but then you're also running a business. And so I'm curious, like, how do you reconcile those two things? Like, was it was it difficult for you to become a business owner? And is, what, did it take a while to get the hack, the not the hack, but the knack of it? Is that the right? I'm still very much learning. I, I don't think I've arrived at that. But right. When I used to live in San Francisco, the rent would be due. I wouldn't have enough rent. And I'd say, well, since I don't have the rent, I have some money. I might as well go to Tower Records. I mean, that mm -hmm. seemed totally logical. Yeah, so that's the same way. That's exactly like, me. Yeah. As long as I can't pay it, I might as well go have some fun. Yes. And then 
early when I was really young, I think I probably shouldn't admit this, but my first girlfriend and I would write each other checks on Friday for like a hundred dollars and go to our own banks and cash the other ones. And they were, oh, we have 200 bucks for the weekend. We didn't have any money to start at all. So it was like, we, I, that's how irresponsible I was. So to be running a multi-million dollar company is like hysterical. Um, but I don't know where I fit politically in some of this stuff, but capitalism is what we have. So how do you make it the best case scenario? So we, our entry level is 18 an hour, like whether you work in the store or the warehouse, we have really great benefits. We, um, you know, donate a certain, I go out on a limb a couple of times, we've gotten in trouble for, we were working with FedEx and loving the service, but they were actually giving a discount to NRA members. So we actually had a big, huge public fuss. We actually dropped them for about a year until they stopped. Wow. how much we had to do with it. And we went to UPS, which for our needs, I'm not saying it's a bad company, but they didn't, it wasn't as good a fit and it was really painful. But so my staff hates when I go on a jag. We also like do, we give a percentage of the Mexican beans we send to the border. There's this great group called No More Deaths. I almost said No More Tears, the old Barbara Streisand. <laughs> no More Tears, right. No More Summer. Deaths. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they actually provide water for people trying to cross this horrible desert so i mean there's certain little things like that it's like okay this is capitalism but mm -hmm. i think there's you have to be a responsible corporate citizen and so those are kind of the things that we do and that for me makes it actually fun to see in a weird way how profitable can we be so we can spread that a bit so what was the moment like you know going from the guy that was like cashing your friend's checks to to running a multi-million dollar business like i mean was there a moment when you started rancho gordo because I imagine at the very beginning, it was just sort of almost like a fluke, like, let me just throw For some sure. beans in a bag and see what happens. But did it click over at some point? Like, oh, I am running a big business here and I better get my act together. I mean, was it like that? I, I think there was one rainy morning at five in the morning where I had to get up to go to the farmer's market. And I looked over at my neighbor's house and the smoke was coming out of the chimney and it looked so cozy. <laughs> and it was like, oh you know what, screw it, I'm not going to go. And it's like, no, there might be that one person who's coming in the rain to see me, mm -hmm. and I have to go. And I think that was the day I grew up right. in a weird way. It was responsible. Like, oh, yeah. it's bigger than me now. Because they're actually, what if someone is planning a dinner party and coming to the farmer's market just to see me? And mm -hmm. I thought, I can't do that. So I went. And I think it's, it, it sounds silly, and I've never talked about this before, but I actually think that might have been one of the few moments. It's like, okay, this will pay off if not today, some other time. And it's interesting because it was not about you and your own pleasure and like going to buy records at Tower Records. It was like about somebody else's needs. It was sort of like leaving your own self for somebody, you know, that that's what the step was to grow. Funny, yeah. And the funny thing is even odder is I, I had a long, boring, I mean, I tried a million different jobs and I've just basically, I give up. I can't do this because there's always someone younger and smarter and cheaper willing to take your job, it seems like. So that's when I decided to get a garden and maybe get a job at Target and see how it goes. And it's uh, at the point when I thought I'm only going to do this for me that I actually had the success. Hmm. But even with the label, I thought, well, what do I want? When I open my pantry, what do I want to see? It's like, I want to see that. I don't want to see, you know, Nestle's quick or something. <laughs> I want to see a lady with licking her lips because the food's so good. 
So how do you deal with it? Because you seem like a very nice guy and affable and pleasant, but like knowing your background, well, just knowing that you, you know, you, you kind of grew up kind of um, marginalized, but also, you know, like marching to the beat of your own drum. I guess I'm curious, like, how did, how do you deal with something like having to fire somebody or yell at somebody or somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do and the beans don't come in? Like, is that difficult for you to, to deal with that kind of stuff or does it come naturally? No, no, no. I hate it. I mean, yes. firing people is the worst. I mean, I right. really would rather not do that again. Um, no, it, it stresses me out to no end. I mean, yeah. I feel it deeply and uh, yeah. that's what I would say. I, I can't give you any advice to anybody on that. Right. But in terms of your, like who you are, yeah, it, it seems contrary to who you are to have to fill those shoes of being a business owner of having yes. to do that. Yeah. yeah. We're luckily we're bigger now. So we have 26 employees between the warehouse and here. And um, I've got really great staff and we're all trying to do the same thing. So hopefully it, it doesn't come up all that often. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious. Um, you mentioned having children. So mm-hmm. one thing that I was wanted to know is what food knowledge did you pass down to your children? And are they cooks themselves? Do they like, do they like to cook? No. Well, the oldest has some real picky habits. Okay. Which I totally blame on his mother. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember gardening with him and we would, we harvested tomatoes and we made tomato sauce and then we, he, I made him make it. So he was probably like eight. And then we put him on pasta and he ate it like a banshee. And then the mother's like, he doesn't eat tomatoes. I was like, well, when you grow them yourself and he's cooking them, maybe he does. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, he won't eat tomatoes now. Um, so That's he's, funny. yeah, but oddly he loves cilantro. So I, mean, <laughs> I can't figure this whole thing out. He actually doesn't have horrible taste, but he really likes simple food and he likes ingredients to really be their thing. So uh-huh. I would say that. Um, and I think he's more like cold with school. Oh, right. <laughs> it food, is love food. Not food. I think it's yeah. really good. But then the younger son, who you know was quite rambunctious and everything, I he moved to Holland and he's actually studying agriculture and he'll wow. eat anything. And he actually worked locally at our local charcuterie, the fatted calf. Uh, he worked there and he has a really strong work ethic and. He wants no part of Rancho Gordo, but at the same time, he's doing all the stuff that is totally related to it. So wow, it's pretty good. Yeah. That's so funny. Cause it's like, I, I don't think we're going to have children, but that is the fantasy for me is like, well, if I had a kid, I would be in the kitchen with them and showing them. And then if, stuff. if that's your fantasy, that's the last thing you're going to get. You're going to get yeah. a eater who wants Lunchables. <laughs> if that's really right. what you want, they're going to totally. they can smell it. That'll be their rebellion. Well, I've, I know that um, I read, I read a bit about you before this interview did a little research, but I think it was maybe the New Yorker, but, and you talked about it a little earlier about this dynamic that you had with your children's mother and that, uh, that there was a marriage or something, but maybe like, I don't know if you want to go into all that. But... Yeah, it has, it's, it's not digestible really. So okay. It's not digestible. Like we won't go there. Okay. Yeah. But, but, um, but I guess in terms of you creating a home for yourself, um, the way you populate your life, it feels like you, not, not just created a home for yourself, but created almost like a little village for yourself with like your mother living next door. Yeah. And- no, and it's pretty rural, and but it's a mountain. So I know a lot of the neighbors and um, some of them are older and I have them over all the time. And that was the first thing we did after we all got vaccinated was get together for dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, it's definitely a nice little community now. So when you have people over for dinner, I mean, I imagine beans are often on the menu. Um, but what else, what else are you cooking for people? 
Well, you know what's so funny? I used to think you had to come up with this incredible menu every time you had a dinner party, but then you realize it's sort of seasonal and you don't usually have the same people over. So it's like, you almost get like a quarter, I get like a quarterly menu that I re refine, re tweak. And uh, so I was doing really for a long time, uh, poblano chilies with, in a, with cream and chicken and like a chicken with a poblano cream sauce. That was always okay. the main thing. And then when corn is in season, I learned this at the Hacienda, they turn the pans up super high and they just put epizote, which is a pretty strong herb um, and salt and a chili and no oil, no nothing else. And then they kind of char it and it's absolutely, so I, I, you get your seasonal things. And um, mm -hmm. right now I've been doing fish in fig leaves because I have a beautiful fig tree and I had no idea that figs leaves impart such flavor. It's almost this vanilla fruit. Yeah, really David great. Leibovitz has a recipe on his blog for fig leaf ice cream. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And there's a fig tree that one of my neighbors has in front of their house. I don't know if it's their tree, but there's all these leaves on it. And I keep wanting to kind of sneak over there with a pair of scissors and just like, oh, I bet they'd love it. I mean, you think so? Oh, I don't I don't know them. These are strangers. So I've literally never met them. They're like, what a nice way to meet them by, by cutting off their fig leaves. <laughs> Maybe you I'll be careful when you do cut them or if I was just ripping them out and they have this white sap that many people, including myself, react to. So it actually gives you this horrible rash. Oh, so no. Really just respectful. It's not, it's not scary, but just be respectful of it. Okay. But they, actually, when you dry the leaves, you can make a tea that apparently is really good for diabetics and lowering blood sugar. I've been, I have these beautiful, uh, not cast iron, but, uh, blue iron or what do you call them i'm sorry i'm having a moment like like crusade like um no no but it's full on um forged hammered steel it's just steel a carbon steel or carbon something? steel yes yeah <laughs> been a long day so i put the uh leaves in the bottom i add the marinated fish and i put leaves on top and then i just bake it and it's out of this world and the leaves get really hard and crunchy on the top and it just imparts everything so it, it's been really fun so as your cuisine i mean when you talk about um doing the corn and um i guess some of the other stuff like oh the poblano chilies like do you feel like your cuisine is generally like mexican influenced mostly it, it used to be more in fact i would be really proud if i didn't make mexican oh look this is a mexican but, <laughs> um you know i think you get older they tell me and you just sort of get your groove i don't I call it new hacienda cooking. <laughs> new hacienda cooking. That sounds yeah. like the name of a cookbook. I, that's a good one. I um, <laughs> live in an old church, actually. It was built in 1930. And um, I'm trying to, it was Seventh-day Adventist, so it's rather bland. I mean, there's not a lot of ornamentation. And even though I'm an atheist, I'm turning it into a Catholic nightmare because I just love colonial <laughs> art in particular. But I, um, it has a hacienda feel. So I do... I think there's something gracious about that. Um, so in terms of Mexican cooking at home, like for me, I, I, I don't do that much of it. Um, you know, I've made tortillas before, like with, uh -huh. with masa, but is there a certain um, book or a certain place that you, you would recommend for people to start um, that you like? I mean, I, I know that Diane Kennedy has her books and Rick Bayless has his books, but is there like somebody maybe more obscure. This is surprising, but one of the best Mexican book cookbooks to me is called Frida's Fiestas. And it's 
in Mexico, it's like it's called Frida and Diego, but of course we don't even know who Diego Rivera is here. It's played Market is that, and it's from his stepdaughter, and it talks about the parties that Diego and Frida would throw, and it has the occasion, and it has the menus, and then it has the recipes, and the recipes are a tiny bit vague, but not scary vague. Mm-hmm. It's like I've never cooked a bad thing from it, and I think that to me is one of the best examples of Mexican cooking all around is that, but. Hopefully that's the first book, and then you get one of Patty's books. Maybe you get right. one of Diana's books, and you know, Rick Bayless, especially his earlier books, that are even better. So, and the Zarela Oaxaca book. So, you know, as a foodie, the Oaxaca book came out, I think, in the early '90s, and uh-huh. it just changed everything. So, everyone's just discovering Oaxaca, but foodies have known about it for a really long time, and. That book holds up, which is really kind of exciting. who wrote that book? Zarela Martinez. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she, she has a restaurant in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, she also wrote a great book on Veracruz, which you didn't ask about. If I could go anywhere in Mexico, Veracruz is the place to eat. It's like going to Bologna when you go to Italy. It's just oh, it's so specific and delicious that it, it's oh. worth going to see. Unfortunately, it's super dangerous right now. Oh, is it? But, yeah, but hopefully things will calm down. I'm glad you told me about that book. I love like off the beaten path book like Frida's Fiestas like oh, it's great. I'm and gonna the, go find it gorgeous and yeah. uh it's a little bit of everything and I found the vagueness of the recipes refreshing and everything comes out and her like her mole negro recipe and, and mole really is more a party dish it's not an everyday dish and yeah goes into it and uh it, it, it's terrific although you recently ever- you know the yeah. new Oaxaca book by the people who own Yelagetsa, and I can't remember their names. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know Javier Cabral. Cabral. I just had her on my podcast. Oh, good. Brisha Lopez uh, was that the owner. Great. I think okay. that was really ugly. Just don't oh, well, <laughs> the she's not listening. Yeah. Yeah. But inside, the photography is great and the recipes are great. And it isn't, I don't think, a great representation of all Oaxacan food, but it's definitely that family's Oaxacan food and it's mm-hmm. completely. It's a great book. I think everyone should read that one. And so with mole, how often do you make mole? And no. Once every five years. Because I mean, it's a lot of work. Yeah, no, and it's so funny you watch Top Chef and everything. So I did it in a mole. So yeah. Like, you're very liberal with that word. I mean, well, this oh, season, I feel like mole is like almost every episode that guy is making mole. Yeah, so I think probably technically it might be, but it's not really that. Just, can you use the word sauce? <laughs> yeah. Fine. I mean, it, I don't know. There are many moles, but... Uh, it's a tough one. He's it's doing really well, event. that guy. I've heard his name, but tonight's the finale, so I'm curious. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah and you know what? Name. All three of them are great. Like, I actually wouldn't be upset who wins. Like, yeah. I know they're all three, like, great cooks, and they seem like nice people. So I'm going cool. tonight to a new restaurant in L.A. called Damien, I think it's called. And it's I think it's from uh, Enrique... Olivera, is that his Olivera, name? Yeah. From, uh, Pujol, and I think oh, so. Nice. It's his new LA restaurant, so I'll be interesting to try. They might have ravines. He's been, oh. he's been a supporter for a while. Well, so Steve, we're not quite at the end of the podcast, but we're nearing the end, and I, I feel, I don't know, did I, did I get everywhere with you? I mean, do you feel like I, I, I zeroed in on some stuff, or do you feel like we missed missed some parts? Um. I'm a hoarder and controlling, <laughs> irresponsible. Like I see. Yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, we got all that. Yeah, you got yeah. me pegged. Yeah. Well, you uh, seem you seem very casual. You don't feel you know. It feels like it almost feels like you stumbled into this business rather than like 
you know, you don't seem like this ferocious, um, you know, you're not like, uh, like Gordon Gecko on Wall and Wall Street, like, you know, biting off the heads of raw chickens to uh, live chickens to like run your business. No, but yeah. I, that's the really interesting thing is I think that part's misleading and okay. that I'm casual about it. So I did stumble into it, but I think really early I recognized, okay, this could work. So you don't screw this up the way you screw everything else up. Yeah. So I have a little bit of that uh, in me, but I think sometimes people watch me doing it and they're like, oh, I could do it better than him. He's not even trying. And I think <laughs> it's shocking to realize how hard this is. Well, I think, uh, I think it's probably a very useful strategy to come across as not that you're consciously doing it, but to be like affable and, and relaxed and then well, also be running a business. Yes. So this is, I think, you know, with the business, I think you have to be really clear about what you expect. And then I'm not the type of person that wants to follow through. It's like you did it or you didn't. And I'm praying you're going to come to me if you need help, but I'm not going to sit there and oversee everything you're doing. So that doesn't work for everybody. We've had some perfectly talented people that haven't worked, but if that kind of independence works, I think I'm really a good boss if that's Mm -hmm. what you want. And if not, I'm probably cold and dim. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine that. Well, I was curious, like when you look back on the business and you think about the the components that made it such a success, do do you think it came down to the, the design? Do you think it came down to the marketing? Do you think it came down to the taste or you think it was all, all of it? You know, I haven't taken that victory lap yet to really look at it. We're, like, we're so right in the thick of it. I haven't figured out what it is, why it's working. I do right. find, I mean, people don't know this, but I actually literally write every newsletter and I write all the copy for the website. And I sometimes I feel like I'm a writer, even though I'm not. But I think I'm doing it because I just really love it. I love mm-hmm. telling the story and imparting the secret, much like, you know, in, say with Mexico, it's like, or even when I was in, I was really into Italy and I lived there for a while and it was like, cool, let me tell you my little story. So I love that part of it, mm-hmm. I think, but I don't, yeah. I mean, this is our 20th year and I still like haven't, the unexamined life isn't worth living, I guess, but I still haven't examined this yet to figure out what. Well, I, th- I think it's a sort of, I think you took a, a everyday ingredient that most people took for granted and showed them how it could be special. And it's sort of like, there might not have been a demand for that, but you, you created that demand yes. and now there is. I, I would say that, but I also know how lucky I am because there's a lot of people that are talented and work really hard and don't get anywhere. So it just was, I was the right guy with the right product at the right time. And I've had a really good time all along the way, but it wasn't until this that I really had success. And so I think I appreciate it more than most people do because it was late and I don't take it for granted. I don't take it too seriously too on some mm-hmm. level. But I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> One day I will look back on this and say, oh, you know what I did right was that logo. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think you did a lot of things right. Um, well, Steve, so we're nearing the end. And I usually start every podcast by asking what you had for lunch, but I end every podcast by asking, what are you having for dinner tonight? Um, probably, to be honest with you, I'm seeing my oldest. And we're going to go get a burrito somewhere, probably. And, okay. Uh, yeah, we which is very interesting because most Mexicans in Napa are from Michoacan or Jalisco. And we have the most generic taco culture here that mm. uh, it really, there's an opportunity for somebody is to open a regional Mexico, Mexican restaurant here. That sounds, that sounds like a good idea. And not that I have anything against, you know, young gringo chefs doing an interesting new take on tacos, but <laughs> it could. <laughs> 
I, there is opportunity for regional food because there is like interesting takes on street food, I think are super boring at this point. I'm curious, it feels like the culture of Napa, like um, with Thomas Keller and the French Laundry, which used to be like when I thought of Napa and I thought of restaurants, like that was the, that's what I would think about immediately. But it feels like the culture in the food world has shifted so much that that doesn't feel like the center of the culinary universe anymore. And I'm curious, like, is, has, has Napa itself shifted in terms of the kind of restaurants that are popping up there and the kind of food that's being made there? Yes, I mean, it's really expensive to do something here. So unfortunately, it's super budget or super special event food, and it isn't really my thing. So that's another reason why I live in my little bubble on my mountain right. and have dinner parties. And friends. <laughs> so you really so, live on a mountain? I do. I don't either. Yeah. And so you, is it is it like its own town or it's just like... No, no, it's, I'm incorporated part of town and it's a wind, super windy road that ends up going to the next county over, which is Sonoma. And... Uh, it's very it's great i don't want to tell too many people about it but i yeah don't give away your secrets no. well it's it's funny you know the best meal that i had in napa i'm so sad it closed uh was at cindy's backstreet kitchen oh she's so great yeah yeah and i i um i actually was doing a book tour for my last book and i had to drive from san francisco to napa to do an event there which was its own funny story involving lentils which i could tell in a second but <laughs> i remember i was in so much traffic on the drive from san francisco to napa that when i got to napa i was starving and i drove up to cindy's backstreet kitchen and i sat at the bar and i think i ordered like short ribs and a glass of red wine and it was truly the best meal I think I've ever had just because yeah. of how hungry I was, but also how soul satisfying it was. Well, she's an amazing cook too. So and she's still oh. around. I mean, she's still involved with mustards and she's Cindy Paulson and she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, her books are great too. I have one of her, I have her Cindy's supper club. Yeah. Uh, oh, so the other part of the story with the, with the lentils, I'll just tell you, cause you'll, you'll get a kick out of this was that the reason I was going to Napa was I had to do a, a cooking demonstration at the whole foods in Napa. Uh -huh. And so I was demoing the lentil soup from my cookbook and oh, I um, was in front of like an empty room. It was like three <laughs> old ladies in the front row. And so I was like, here's how you make lentil soup. Here's it. And then at some point, this woman was like, you forgot to add the lentils. And I'd actually forgotten to put the lentils in the lentil soup. Well, next time come do it at Rancho Gordo. You know, we have a retail store and we, before COVID, we actually had events all the time. Yeah. I mean, and we've had uh, Diana Kennedy, we've had uh, Deborah Madison, we've had a bunch of people come, so we'd love to have you too. I I'd mean, love to, I'd we, love to do that. Yeah. Once we open up completely, we're almost there. So, what does the future ha have in store in terms of Rancho Gordo products? Well, I mean, there's always new books coming out, and I was going to tell you, you know, the book industry. You may not know this, but it's completely corrupt and really yeah. opaque. So sure. we just thought, screw it. So we started Rancho Gordo Press. So we're only oh, great. publishing our own books. So I've got a couple of books. We're actually starting Rancho Gordo Casa. This is a scoop for you. So okay, we're actually great. doing housewares coming. Our big anniversary is this fall. So we're launching this housewares thing. So a lot of the um, stuff that we, like, yeah. So it's stuff for the kitchen and cooking and things. And it's been very hard because you think, oh, these are nice napkins. It's like, I would never buy them. I mean, and they look like you got them at Bed Bath & Beyond for your daughter who's got her first apartment. Not really. <laughs> like I'm really kind of snotty. So we're doing that, but we might actually be selling some of the Spratling silver. But then we're having a big party at the Native Sons Hall in St. Helena, and we've got a great Columbia band coming. That's coming in the fall. And then I think I'm gonna take a really long vacation. Where will you go? Mexico. I don't know. Mexico, yeah. yeah, Mexico probably, yeah. 
How often do you go to Mexico? Well, at the height of it, I would go four or five times a year, but it has been very painful not being able to go. So I just went this time. I, I mean, going forward, well, I'll go as much as I can, actually. And where, what was the place you said that it was like Bologna? Oh, uh, Veracruz. It's a whole Veracruz. state and it's on the coast and it has a real, like the music they listen to is really more Cuban. So it was a very, uh, it was a important port in the day. And what are the other like highlights for you? Like, I guess Oaxaca is changing, but if you were telling somebody like where to visit in Mexico, like, are there other places you would recommend since you go so often? Um, so hard. Well, the state of Michoacan is great and people don't know it. And I think a lot of times here, at least in California, we take it for granted because everyone's from there, but that's crazy. It has uh, really great food. And if you go to the town of Morelia, it's probably, I don't know, you know, everything right now is kind of hot between COVID and the narco thing. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't believe in being careful, but you, have, you can't be stupid too. Mm-hmm. And I would just add on a political note, we're the ones who take the drugs. So it's our problem too. It's not just this, oh, the Mexicans can't get it together. If we weren't taking drugs, this wouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. Is what I would just, I'll just say that. If yeah, I, that's Without hitting you over the head. <laughs> like, it, it's our problem. So uh, yeah, that's what I would say. Uh, well, yeah, these are great tips. Um, I realized there was one question I forgot to ask you and then we'll be done. Okay. And it's, again, one of those questions you probably get all the time, but where did Rancho Gordo come from? Okay, so the, if this is true. I when I used to be a web designer and when we, people were buying dom- domains, I went to get Rancho Grande. because there's that famous song, Aya and Rancho Grande. And of course it was taken and I thought, oh, Rancho Gordo is kind of funny. Let's just get that. So I just parked it. And then I thought, I'm going to do a diet where you could lose weight eating Mexican food. Well, clearly I've never even attempted it. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I started farming, it's like, oh, I own Rancho Gordo. Let's just try that. Great. And also the, and this is again, the luck is like gringos think Rancho Gordo. I'm speaking Spanish. Like if we were called Loro Huache or Loco or something, it's like people can't wrap their tongues around that, but everybody can say Rancho Gordo. Oh yeah. And also probably even know what it means. So. And do you, and people, do they think your name is Rancho Gordo when they meet you? Well, I think my name is Gordo sometimes, yes. Gordo. I'm a, I'm a little robust. So yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I forgot that that's what that meant. Uh, that's, that's That was in the roots of the business, though. That was in the beginning, the name. Oh, and, well, and, and I was thinking, even though it means fat ranch, I was kind of thinking fat farm, and that would be mm-hmm. a good way to lose weight, which you could. The pre-conquest diet is amazing in Mexico. So if you could take out all the stuff that Spanish brought and eat, what indigenous people ate in Mesoamerica, you have an incredibly healthy diet. That sounds like a good trend, like the Mesoamerican diet. Well, there's a great book, Decolonize Your Diet, or is it called De- Decolonize Your Diet? <laughs> I don't know. I'm that sorry. one I don't you know. know I can't help you there. My brain is like, so much goes in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you're, you're doing great. We learned Decolander. a lot. You, you taught us so many different things. So thank you so much um, okay. for doing therapy. really been a hoot. And, uh, I hope we get to do it in person sooner than later. Yeah, I'd love to come visit you up in Napa. So, uh, well, good luck with everything. And thanks again. Thank you. All right. right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.